The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 91. It is found on page 497 in the Pew Bible around you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, we would love to give you one as a gift from Park Church. And you can pick that up after the service over at the info table. So Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. God, good morning. I'm uh, bringing this up on stage because I just wanted you to know I did it. Uh, World's greatest dad. Um, (laughs) Nine years of a solid effort, and I finally got the cup. Uh, so better luck to the rest of you next year. Um, feel pretty good about that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Feels great. My kids gave it to me this morning. I said I'd bring it up on stage as my drink, except it's full of Skittles and Starbursts. So that's right. That's right. Come on, it's right. All right. Um, a couple of announcements, and I'm going to share a little bit about Father's Day. But before we do, I want to uh, give an announcement. You got this card on your way in. Uh, and it is about Park Kids. I want you to grab it, pull it out. We made them and printed them and handed them to you on purpose. Um, so you'd pay attention to it. There's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. Um, right now in our service, we have a, a number of uh, children that are downstairs, children that are here in the sanctuary with us. We're so glad for the kids that are in the sanctuary. So thankful for the kids that are being discipled downstairs. Um, and a, a huge piece of who we are as the body of Christ, our core mission really is to make disciples of all people. Uh, to make disciples of all people. And we do that for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. And that includes children. And, um, and, and that's a, a really important aspect of, of what we're doing when we're gathering. But as we do kind of like programming and as kids sit in services and we try to equip parents to make disciples in their home, unless the Spirit of God kind of floods these efforts with His power and His presence, 
then our kids won't know Jesus. They might learn about, about Jesus. They might learn about Christianity. They might learn about the Bible. But we want to be praying as a people that God would flood our kids with the knowledge of his glory, that they would know his love, and that they would walk with him all their days. And so on one of the sides of this card, we have some ways to be praying for the kids at Park Church. And we just want to encourage you to have that card. Keep it in your Bible. Put it on the refrigerator. Um, Put it wherever you can be reminded to regularly pray for the children of Park Church. If you don't have children, uh, we still should be praying. This is our church family, and we should be praying actively that our kids would know Jesus and walk with Jesus and that they would know his love. And so that's there for you. And on the other side, um, there are ways to serve with Park Kids. In particular, with our Sunday programming, we have ways to be praying for our kids. So if you want to know, how can I find more specific ways to pray for our kids? There's a way to sign up for um, being on the prayer team. They get emails about different things to be praying for for our children uh, as the weeks kind of go by. Ways to be praying for the kids and park kids, but also a number of ways to greet and serve the kids um, through our park kids programming. And I, I want to say this. Um, I have been known historically uh, to sometimes do some arm twisting and public shaming to get people to serve in park kids. And I'm not sorry. I'm just not even, not even sorry about it. Uh, here we go again. So just saying buckle up. Um, We have a beautiful, beautiful opportunity to teach children who Jesus is, what he's done, and what it means to follow him in this world. A beautiful opportunity to do that as the family of God. And and our church has plenty of adults that have equipping and and sufficiency and capacities to do that in a ton of different ways. And there are a lot of ways to be involved in it. We have these ways uh, kind of written here. We have greeters that are just kind of welcoming parents, helping parents get the kids checked in. All you have to do is welcome people and love people. We have ways to be lead teacher. That's someone that's like, I want to teach the kids about Jesus week after week. So one particular service, one particular class every week, um, being the main teacher for that class, which is a bigger commitment, but a really beautiful opportunity to get to know kids relationally and their families relationally. Support teachers where maybe you don't have that capacity, you don't have that sort of time availability or schedule doesn't allow for it, but you could help out periodically. And by helping one of those teachers, that means you don't have to prepare to teach. You just have to be there to love the kids and care for the kids and invest in them. Um, Even uh, we have places to do our medical assistant, people that are working one-on-one. If you have gifts or interest in helping children with special needs, we have a number of children in our church with special needs. We try to uh, know them, love them, and care for them in very particular ways. Um, And so there are opportunities here to get involved. And what I want to encourage you is whether or not you have kids to say, as a church to know it is our responsibility to teach them about Jesus. It's our responsibility. And we have found ourselves pretty often like struggling to get volunteers. And, uh, and so this is, this is me pushing a little bit. Like this is, our, this is our job. This is our job. And so when we say like, um, I want to ask you to consider how, how might God be calling you to serve and to support and to make disciples of children. It is not only investing in the kids, but it's also freeing up families um, to come to a service where they're not kind of like uh, managing and wrangling their children, which makes it easier for them to, to listen to what God's speaking to them. We can worship Jesus with our kids, but it's a lot easier to pay attention. My wife says, like her, you know, uh, her kind of like ability to track what I'm saying when I'm preaching goes from about 50% about to 20% when the kids are with her. You know, 50 is good. 20 when the kids are with her, 20% tracking, you know, uh, meaning paying attention. No, I'm just saying like it's, it's easier and we want to serve families as well, but we need people to help with that. Uh, we really do. And, uh, and so I want to ask you to kind of like default to saying, I should, I should help out. Because we need a lot of people. We have plenty of people. And if everybody thought, man, I could help out once every month or so, come to an extra service and love on kids. 
like we'd be great. We'd be great. So I want you to default to saying, I should do that. And then there might be reasons why, why you can't, and, and you're loved, and there really is no shame. Jesus loves you, like, so much. It, it kind of not contingent on whether or not you serve and park kids. But again, my love for you is semi-contingent. Uh, I'm not Jesus, so, um, no, not really, but kind of. So, uh, I want you to kind of like think about what does it mean? What is it, how could I serve? How could I help out? Uh, and then you can follow, you can go to the website on the bottom of this uh, page there um, and plug in there and find some ways to serve. You can also go to the info table after the service, ask more questions, but sign up to serve. Sound good? Great. That means nobody's going to do it. Uh, that means nobody is going to do it. All right. We wasted a few minutes there. All right. Does that sound good? All right. Still no. Okay. Um, if you're new to Park Church, we are so thankful you're here. We're not going to ask you to serve in Park Kids yet, but three or four weeks down the line, you're up. No, uh, we're, we're thankful for you, truly. This is a family God's building. He's given us this mission in Denver. We'd love to welcome you, get to know you a little bit, uh, and give you some next steps to getting involved. So right after the service down this hallway, there's a room marked introductions. One of our staff members will be there. We take about 10 minutes to get to know you a little bit. Uh, share with you a little of who we are, the mission God's given us here in Denver, and how to get more um, plugged in and connected to our church family. So we'd love to get to know you there. Um, Last, I want to talk about Father's Day for a moment before we get into Psalm 91. Um, One, happy Father's Day. Um, Happy Father's Day to the fathers among us. We're so thankful for you, so thankful for the way that God has designed uh, you and designed even fatherhood to show us something about what he's like, something about his love, his care, his protection, his provision, his, his nearness, um, and to know that you as a father have this really beautiful opportunity to image God, meaning to show your children and really to show the world what God's like by the way you love your kids, care for your kids, and the way, the way you're present with your kids. It's a beautiful thing. And so as you do that to the fathers among us, I want to say thank you. And we're so thankful for you, glad that you're here, and we're grateful for you. Um, and we know that fatherhood is hard. Um, I've said this before, I do not know a father that thinks they're killing it as a father. I don't know one. I don't know anybody that's like, man, this dad thing, I'm crushing it. I don't know any. Most of us feel what I feel is a a degree of shame in areas where I fall short, where I get frustrated and angry. Yesterday, I have to apologize to my kids for just getting loud and angry and and just misrepresenting God's character, having to ask for forgiveness for those things and, and regrets that you might have. Or maybe there's pain in your relationship with your father. Maybe you've lost a father. And, or maybe you're here and you've lost your father, you've lost a loved one, and there's a lot of grief around Father's Day. There's a lot of pain around Father's Day. And so as we gather as a church, what we're saying as we're saying Happy Father's Day is we want to commend the goodness of fatherhood, but even in the brokenness and the pain, we want to allow that to kind of lift our eyes up to God, our good, good Father, who loves you, who is for you, who sings over you. Even, even if you're a father who feels regret and pain, to know that God's love for you isn't contingent on how well you've done. He's not irritated with you. He's not disappointed with you. He sings over you. He delights in you as his son. Or if you're here and you're feeling the grief and the loss and the absence of a father or strain in your relationship with your father, um, God is there. He's the father that can comfort you in that. As your earthly father, as you're feeling that friction or that absence, or that grief, God is a father who draws near to the brokenhearted. And he's a good father who's present with us and who loves us unconditionally always. And he's here with you today. I'm going to pray that you would know his presence and know his love. Um, So we're going to pray today as he speaks to us through his word that he would comfort us in very particular ways. Um, But we're thankful that all of you came here today. Let's pray together. 
And Jesus, we come and we ask for your help. And we're thankful so much uh, for the way that you have, through your life and your death and your resurrection, you have brought forgiveness for our sins, but also reconciliation with our Father in heaven. That we, right now, get to know the love of a Father that's not contingent on how good our week was or how good we feel today, that it is entirely on the basis of what you, Jesus, have done for us, that we know that our Father sings over us, delights in us. And so, Jesus, I'm praying by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would... Um, fill us up with a knowledge, not just a cognitive knowledge, not just a mental understanding, but kind of an existential knowledge of your love and your presence today. That we would, in the depth of our soul, in the depth of our being, not just know, but, but feel the reality that our God, our Father in heaven is with us. And God, that you would, even as we see in the psalm, as it were, take your wing, your arm, and that you would draw your people close into the warmth, the security, and the beauty of your covenant love. And then send us out from this place, free, free to love, free to serve, free to show the world what your faithfulness is like. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, I'm, as we think about fatherhood, one of, the, one of the things that's been interesting for my wife, my wife and I, as we've talked about parenting, is how different our approach is to our kids. And we've learned to really appreciate this about one another. And I, I, I've like learned to not kind of like stereotype everybody. I don't think everybody's like this, but there are some commonalities and some differences between fathers and mothers. So for me and our family, um, I'm definitely like the, like, go do dangerous things and break a leg. Like, seriously, you should break your leg or something. You know, like, something hard should happen because what's the saying, right? Like, whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? That's what I like. That's like, yes, go out there. Crazy stuff should happen. And my wife is much more like, uh, loving and, uh, and protective and careful and comforting to our children and making sure that they're safe and, and cared for. We saw this kind of come to a head. Uh, we were sending our son out who's here, who's nine. Uh, we were sending him out to summer, uh, summer camp thing with his school. And it's the first time he had been away from the family for a three-night camp up in the woods in the mountains. And so uh, my wife was being very, very thoughtful to make sure he's prepared and everything's cared for and he's got all his clothes and he knows how to be safe and he knows all of his things. And I'm telling him stories about what to do when the bears attack the cabin. And I'm like, you know, just lock the door, stay away from the windows, you'll be fine. You know, typically it's only one or two, but you'll, you'll be fine. As far as the mountain lions go, don't worry about them because by the time they're on you, it's too late. Uh, it's, just, it's just too late. And, uh, and so this is kind of like our parenting approach, which is different. And, uh, and we've learned... We've learned to appreciate that about one another. And so the question I, I'm asking as we think about parenting as a way to show the world what God's like is like, well, which is he more like? Like in that scenario, probably more like my wife. Let's give, let's give that. But it's really, he's both. Is he, is he primarily like wanting us to learn and grow through difficulties or is he primarily protecting us and keeping us safe and secure? And it really is both. And this psalm brings us into some of that in some really beautiful and powerful ways. Uh, portraying for us a God who's with us in the midst of calamity. Not protecting us from trouble, but he's with us in the trouble, comforting us, protecting us, and keeping us safe inside his love in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the difficulties. And so we're going to look at this this morning in the psalm. And if that, you want like a, kind of a heartbeat of the psalm, is that you don't need to be afraid because God will protect you in, in times of trouble. You don't need to be afraid. Whatever it is, the fears that you carry through this life, you don't need to be afraid 
because God will protect you in times of trouble. I did not say from times of trouble. In times of trouble. And this psalm shows us this in a really unique way. There's some pretty common misunderstandings uh, of what this psalm is about. And so I'm going to kind of structure it a little bit differently. Um, if you're familiar with kind of a basic Bible study method, this is how I'm going to structure the psalm if you need hooks. We're going to look at what does it say, what does it mean, and why does it matter? So what does it say? And look at some observations on what it's actually saying. What does it mean? Like interpret it. What does that mean for us? Because there's some complicated things in here as you try to make sense of what does that mean for me? And then why does it matter for our lives? And so we'll spend the majority of the time on the first couple of these. Uh, But the first thing we're going to look at is what does it say? What does it say? Um, So open up your Bible, Psalm 91. We're going to keep it open the whole time and try to see what God's saying to us through his word. Um, First, just like structurally, it's interesting. The first two verses give kind of this introduction, this kind of thematic thing. And it's, um, it's a psalm that's being sung by an individual. It's an individual who has come to experience God in a very powerful way as his refuge. And then from verses 3 on, it's going to kind of change gears. But I want you to look at the first two verses. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so what the psalmist is doing right now is bringing us into the theme of the message. God is a refuge. He is a fortress. He protects us under the shadow of his wings. He is near to us. He is a shelter. And he's saying to us, he's saying that this is what God is like. This is his character. And he is expressing a personal conviction. I will say, this commitment, I will say my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This conviction, this is a psalmist who has come to experience God as his refuge. There are things that have happened in his life that he's, he's learned that God is a place to go in times of calamity, in times of destruction, in times of pain. And he's expressing that out of the gate. What's interesting is starting in verse 3 until verse 13, he's going to start speaking in the second person singular, which that means to you individually which is kind of unique among the psalms. A lot of times there's you plural. There's a lot of corporate psalms that we sing together. This psalm is a psalmist that's kind of singing about his experience of God as a safe refuge and then saying, I want you to know him as a refuge and you to know him as a refuge and you to know him as a refuge. Like he's a refuge for you individually, personally, in the calamities and the troubles and the difficulties that you face. And so he's experienced this this God as a refuge and a safe place that he's found, found joy and rest and security with him. And he wants us and he wants you to know. And I think it's beautiful because if you've ever kind of walked through life and you've walked through hard things and people start hearing the way God met you in those difficulties, the way it ministers to them, the way they learn like, man, God, God met them in those powerful ways. And it gives me confidence to hear what God did to sustain them so that he can sustain me. And that when you share those stories or you hear those stories, God is actually communicating with us and building our confidence in him as a place to run in the midst of trouble when life starts spinning out of control. And then in the last few verses, 14 um, all the way through the end, um, it shifts gears again. And now the Lord is speaking. He's making a promise that all who call on him, all who know them by name, he's saying, I will be with you. In trouble. I will deliver you. I will rescue you. I will satisfy you. 
that God is actually making a personal promise in this psalm. It's not just a psalmist saying, I know this distant, far-off God in this way, and I want you to know him in this way. He's saying, I know him intimately, and I want you to know him intimately. And now God's saying, I want you to know me. I want you to come to me. I want you to call on me. I want you to cry out to me. I want to satisfy you. I want to deliver you. I want to rescue you. I want to be your refuge. And our prayer has been that that you would hear that from God today, not just cognitively, but that you would hear the Lord in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the calamity, in the midst of the, the areas of your life that are spinning out of control, that you would hear the Lord saying to you, call out to me, call out to me, draw near to me, come near to me, come closer and experience the security of my love. It's a beautiful, beautiful structure to the psalm, and I love it because I think it helps us understand even the way God ministers among us. But in the psalm, what's also stunning to me is some of these images of his protection, um, the images of his care. And so right out of the gates, you have these images like um, shelter and uh, refuge. Um, We were praying this morning, and as we were praying, uh, we were praying that that we would know God as a congregation, we would know God as a, as a shelter. And as, as somebody was praying, they were saying um, that God, like this idea of a shelter, a shelter isn't always comfortable. It's a place of safety. It's not always a place of comfort. It's a place of safety. And I thought, man, what a, what a powerful thing. When you think about a shelter, um, it's not always a place that's like safe. I, if you've ever hiked Long's Peak, um, Long's Peak has kind of right in front of the keyhole as you're on your way up, this kind of structure, this um, like stone uh, fortress little thing that's uh, there right at the keyhole on your way through. On the other side of the keyhole, there are some narrows, really treacherous uh, kind of area. And if a storm comes in, if you're kind of late getting down and people are dehydrated and you're, and you're stuck as the weather changes on the narrows or on these ledges, um, it's it's treacherous. But if you can get through there, if a storm comes in, you can get into this refuge, this little shelter, like you're safe. You're going to be safe. But you don't want to hang out there forever either. You know what I mean? It's not warm and comfortable, which is why I love where the psalmist goes. He doesn't just say, I'm a shelter, I'm a fortress, this kind of impersonal place. He actually then talks about this. Look at verse four. He says, he will cover you with his pinions. On, on, and under his wing you will find refuge. The pinions are the kind of like uh, the feathers, the kind of most outermost feathers of a bird. And in this pinions, the images of this mother bird that would take her young and bring them closer in the midst of a storm or in the midst of impending attack. That it's not just an impersonal protection from calamity. It is a personal care that God is saying what I'm like What I'm like is a God that in the midst of the calamities, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of the emotional kind of like turmoil you're going through, in the midst of all of the things of this world, all of the brokenness, I'm the type of God that would just grab you and pull you in close to me. Close to me. When our kids have nightmares or when they're scared of anything, like what what do you do as a parent? What do we do? Or if you're a kid here, what do you do when you're scared? You draw near to your mom or your dad. You come near and as you hold your children close and they tuck their head in, there's, there's a fear that begins to dissolve as they feel safe and secure in the warmth and the love and in the protection of your arms. And God is saying, I want you to know me like that. Not just to know God is sovereign, therefore I should not be afraid. That's true. But the sovereign God who's in total control wants to like, pull you into his arm, hold you against his chest and say, I'm here. I'm in, I'm in control and I love you. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? I think it's a beautiful image. 
This is the types of images that God is showing us in this passage. And the images for his protection are diverse, but also the images for the trouble is really interesting. You look at the, the different kinds of trouble that he uh, kind of protects people from. Look at verse 3. It says, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. He's like day, night, light, dark, arrows attacking you, traps on the ground, people that are after you, like all of these kind of images, uh, these plagues and this pestilence that's coming after you. He's saying, I will protect you. I will protect you over and over and over again. Even this image of a fowler. A fowler is like a, a person who would trap birds, right? So it's like um, doing kind of trapping stuff. So you set these traps and these snares that birds could come in. You could trap the bird. And this image is that there are actually active forces of darkness that are setting snares for you, that are seeking to turn you away from the love of God, to turn you away from the reign of God, to turn you away from the presence of God. And these forces of darkness have influenced cultural values, what we call cultural idolatries, cultural loves, in ways that are enticing. And these things draw you and allure you away and can ensnare and entrap you. Watching friends walk through these experiences where they're getting ensnared and entrapped and then seeing the same sorts of things in my own heart, these temptations and these things that allure me that, that don't always feel right or wrong, but I find myself wandering away from God and near these traps and saying, God can protect you. When you draw near to him, you come near to him. He's one who can deliver you from the snare of a fowler. Look at verse 7. It starts to get a little interesting here. It says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. It's talking about these plagues and this pestilence. Pestilence. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. He's like, so all these plagues are coming and it won't come near you, and you'll look out with your eyes, and you'll see wicked people experiencing the judgment of God, but you're going to be safe. Which, at this point, I'm starting to scratch my head. Because it doesn't always feel like that. It goes on, it says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, verse 9, Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. So this is like really powerful, very broad, very sweeping explanation of God's protective care. And, and I say I start scratching my head because there are areas where it's, just hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to understand what that means because I feel like I see in me and around me hard things happening often. I don't always feel protected from calamity and trouble and I don't see people being protected. And so you start wondering what's, what's happening. We'll come back to that in a second. Even as the psalm continues to move on, it talks about God's God's spiritual protection, that he's actually sent spiritual beings, angelic beings, to protect you and to minister, you, minister to you in times of trouble. Now, this, is, this is awesome. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but again, I've, I've, my default is a little bit of a more materialistic mindset. And so it's like, okay, I believe in God now, and demons and Satan, okay, like I get that, that there are these forces of darkness, but do we really need angels if we have God? You know what I mean? Like, if Jesus is near, like, what's the point of angels? I, I, don't, I don't know, but they're real. <laughs> so 
they're, they're real spiritual beings. And as much as God is a real spiritual being, there are also other real spiritual beings that God created, spiritual beings that, that are forces of darkness and also forces that are sent by God to minister to you, to care for you. And it's beautiful knowing that they're angelic, there's angelic protection for the people of God. Isn't that awesome to know that? It's an encouraging thing. And then even as you move through the psalm, it talks about God uh, giving us this victory over evil, that we will tread on the lion, we will tread on the serpent, these kind of iconic symbols of darkness and forces of darkness, that there's this victory. And at the end, God promising to keep us safe, to deliver us, and to keep us safe in his love. Um, it's a really beautiful passage. But again, I come back to this like, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Because what is he actually protecting us from? Um, yesterday, Yesterday, I, uh, my wife and I went to a, a funeral for a friend of mine in the city, um, a wonderful, wonderful man. He's a, a pastor um, of Advent Anglican Church. His name was Rob Paris. Um, really phenomenal man of God, a man that has ministered to me and cared for me in really beautiful, beautiful ways. And um, really thankful for my friendship with him. And I sit there yesterday thinking about Psalm 91, coming today and watching, watching these stories of his faithfulness, of his love, of his character, of his godliness to his wife, his two teenage daughters, the church he had pa- pastored and planted, to people that he had been a youth pastor with, just these stories of his faithfulness. Like here's a man that in my experience of him, but then also in hundreds and hundreds of other people's experience, a man that was so beautifully gifted by God to lead people into the love of God, to show people the care of God in the nearness of God. Here's a guy who as he walked through 18 months battling brain cancer in every interaction with him that I had, his peace and his security was like, powerful and stunning and, and incredible to me. And, and then you see like as he dies and as we watch other loved ones around us pass away, you start asking this question, how could it say a thousand may fall at your side, but it won't come near you. I will rescue you. It's like, from what? Because the things we tend to pray for protection from are those kinds of things, aren't they? Don't let that happen to me. You're my refuge. Protect me from that. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, This brings us into, I think, a tension that I want to spend a a little bit of time in, a few minutes in, because I think it's incredibly important for us. Um, As a church, what we're committed to is making very clear to us over and over and over again the gospel of Jesus Christ and why that gospel matters and how it matters for our lives. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is news about what Jesus has done. It is good news about what Jesus has done for us. That he, Jesus, the Son of God, laid down his life on the cross for us. He lived a life that we could have never lived. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He cleanses us with his blood so that we can experience forgiveness and we can be brought back into God's presence, back into relationship with God as children of God, in the family of God, and be a part of the kingdom that he's building, a kingdom that transcends death. A kingdom that is not kind of broken or conquered by death because it's a kingdom that has resurrection power where he will make all things new. And this news that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again to make all things new is beautiful, beautiful news. And it's what the gospel is. And our call is to trust in that news and to follow Jesus and to worship God. 
And yet, as we think about what the gospel is in society, especially in the American church, it has become so distorted in so many very, very destructive ways. And one of the primary ways that it has become dis- distorted is through what people have begun to call or have been calling the prosperity gospel. Now, when we say the prosperity gospel, what we're talking about is the gospel that if you trust in Jesus, life will start going well for you. Things will be good. He'll give you the life that you long for. Jesus exists to help your dreams come true. You want to follow him? Yes, please. That'd be great, except that's not this Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say if you follow Jesus, he'll make all your dreams come true. And he'll never let anything hard happen to you. And you'll live on forever and ever and ever in in health and wealth and prosperity. Now, does Jesus heal? Yes, powerfully. Until you die. And then he raises the dead. And so we as a people learn that the gospel brings total restoration, not in this life of this awesome life and this great life and all these ways, but we learn to trust that through the cross, we experience life and forgiveness and and the blood of Christ cleanses us so the spirit of God, the very presence of God comes into us, that we get to walk with him and know him in the midst of calamity, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, that God is with us, God loves us, God is for us. And this God is a God who on the other side of death, on the other side of death, will make all things new. And this is the resurrection. It's why the resurrection is core to us, because the resurrection of Jesus is the declaration that he has the power to make everything new, to to heal everything that's been broken. But in this life, he has never, ever, ever promised to give you an awesome life that you long for. He has promised to satisfy you with his presence. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forever. And so when we start treating God like a genie in the lamp, to rub the lamp and say, God, give me this life. And when he doesn't, we get frustrated with him. We've fallen into this this false gospel. And it it might not look like affirming all the things, kind of the worst ways that we tend to do it, but the the way it tends to look for us is the things we're praying for, the things we're thinking God is like really about giving us, and the things we think that God is like after. It's like, it's a lot about our kind of material, situational happiness. What we're praying is, God, help me be happy with your good gifts, which is the core struggle in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. There's God, and we can trust in his reign and find joy with him. Or we can go to this tree that he made and think it's going to give me joy, and I'm going to turn away from the presence of God and go to the tree for joy. And that's idolatry. It's turning from God. And we treat God as the one who's going to serve our idolatry, and he's not. He's not. It's not his mission. And should we pray to him? And should we pray for healing? Yes, he loves to show his power in these ways. But they are foretastes of the kingdom. It's not the fullness of the kingdom. So he heals Lazarus, and Lazarus rises from the dead. And everyone's like, whoa, he loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus, and he showed his power. And then later, Lazarus died. So you see his power, but it's a taste. It's a glimpse. It's his love and his power, but it's not, it's not the fullness. And so we come to God asking him to do all these things, and that's not what's happening in this psalm. So what is happening? What's happening? What's interesting, um, Satan himself distorted this psalm. Of all the places in Scripture that Satan appears, there's one place in Scripture where he quotes Scripture, and that's in Matthew chapter 4. It also shows up in Luke. And do you know what Scripture he quotes? 
Psalm 91. Only scripture that Satan quotes is Psalm 91. And here's what he says, and I'll read it from Matthew 4. He's with Jesus in the wilderness. When Jesus is learning to trust God, he's trusting God faithfully in the wilderness in the face of these temptations, in the face of, the, face of this fowler who's trying to ensnare him. And Satan's tempting him with these different allurements to draw him away from God. And one of the ways he seeks to draw him away from God is this. Satan said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. He brought him up to this pinnacle, this high peak. Throw yourself down. For it's written, Jesus, remember Psalm 91, what it says. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. He's saying, if, if God really loves you and if God's real and if you're really beloved by God, then if you throw yourself off this stone, you won't get hurt because God promised he'd protect you from that, didn't he? Isn't that the way that we tend to misinterpret it? It's like God's going to give me, like he's not going to let me hurt my foot. He's not going to let me fall into pain. He's not going to let these hard things happen. And Jesus responds and he says, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And at the end of the psalm, after he faces this temptation, it's interesting, he quotes, or the, uh, Matthew quotes Psalm 91 one more time to say what happened to Jesus. Verse 11 says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. He's saying that the, the presence of God wasn't protecting Jesus from the temptation. It wasn't protecting Jesus from, from anything like that. It was, it was God's protection in the midst of that temptation. In the midst of the wilderness, God was ministering to Jesus, sustaining Jesus, showing his presence to Jesus, even through angelic beings. And that same presence continued to support Jesus as Jesus walked through this life, facing the troubles, facing the calamities. He, he was somebody who had no home. Like foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but Jesus, the Son of Man, he had nowhere to lay his head. Well, where's God then? Well, he is God. Homeless, destitute, betrayed, forsaken, imprisoned, whipped. Was he not faithful? who's totally faithful. And it shows us the beauty of what this passage is actually saying. It's interesting in this passage, there's these images of plagues, these images of judgment, and it's, it's supposed to kind of call your mind back to Exodus, which we've been in. Uh, Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Psalm 91 is thematically connected. And these images of these pestilence and these plagues and these arrows and these attacks are, are images that remind us of the experience of the Israelites, both as they left Egypt and as they're walking through the wilderness. And these images are all images of God's judgment. They're images of God's judgment as, as a world that is turned from God, is separated from his presence. This is a world that is under the curse. I mean, it's under the judgment of God. That means the brokenness and the calamity that happens, even with Satan's activity, even with our own sinfulness, is a part of the curse and the judgment of God, and it's because of human rebellion. So in a very real sense, God is actively unraveling creation as an act of judgment. And that unraveling of creation is going to manifest itself and, and you're going to feel brokenness in your heart and you feel the brokenness relationally and you feel physical disease and calamity and disaster and pain and all these things. And the only way through that, the only way to be safe and secure in that, if you remember for the Israelites, was not because of their moral superiority. It was that they hid themselves behind the blood of the Lamb. They painted the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts and around them, and it was through their faith in God that they were crying out to God that they found themselves protected 
from the judgment of God, not from situational difficulties, but from his judgment. And this is what Jesus came to do, that you can know as you turn to Jesus, when difficult things happen, it's not that God is against you. We say, you are for me. You're, You're not against me. It's who you say I am. He's not trying to condemn you. He's not trying to shame you. He's trying to draw you in and show you his love. And he's trying to show you his nearness. And so you can trust in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty. This is not God seeking to destroy you. God is the safe place to which we run for safety and security, not from physical pain but from judgment that we can know even in pain that God is for us. How do we know? Because this Jesus continued to walk through this life and he faced this ridicule, he faced this pain, trusting in God's presence and God's love and God's power. And he hung on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin. And even as we sang, he became for us this refuge, this rock of ages, a cleft for me. So we could come and we could hide ourselves in him. And as the psalm goes, we could let the water and the blood from his wounded side, which flowed, be for sin, a double cure. Both save us from the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and make us pure. So as we come to Jesus, we experience the love of God, the nearness of God, the presence of God. But it's not just experiencing his presence. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day. And in his resurrection, he showed that death and loss and pain is not the end of the story. He has the power to take dead things and make them alive, to take broken things and to heal them, to take, to take things that have fallen apart and bring them together. He has the power to make all things new. And so the resurrection is our hope. In the midst of calamity, we hide in the presence of God where we know his love and his nearness and his satisfying presence. And we hope in the power of the resurrection that on the other side of death, he will come again and make all things new. And that gives you the ability to have safety and security in all kinds of trouble. So why does it matter then? Why does it matter? Because it matters when, when your relationships are falling apart and you're freaking out because as human beings, you're desperate. For love. You can hide in Jesus. You can come to him and he wraps you up in his arms. And he says, nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you feel alone, like nobody sees you, nobody knows you, you draw near to Jesus. You come near to Jesus and you remember he sees you. He knows you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your heart. He designed you. He knows everything about you and he loves you. When things are falling apart physically, that you can draw near to Jesus, that knowing even as your flesh and your heart fail, like the psalmist said, though my flesh and my heart may fail, you are the strength of my heart and you're my portion forever. And you can hope not only does he have the power to heal, but in the end, he will heal. He will raise the dead. And you can let those moments be for you as the physical realities of life, as your finances fall apart and as relationships are hard and there's physical things and there's emotional stress and all these troubles, it can remind you that joy is not found in the things that the giver gives. It's found in the presence of the giver. And to draw near to him, there's a freedom and a security in all sorts of calamity and all kinds of trouble and all kinds of difficulty to draw near to Jesus to know his love and his presence and to hope in the power of the resurrection. Like just imagine this right now. Imagine what you're afraid of, your fears. 
What are you afraid of? And what would it be like for Jesus as a, as a brother, for God as his father, to draw you near and say, I love you. I love you. And I'm with you. I'm totally with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I'm in total control right now. This isn't the end of the story. It's a hard chapter. It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is all things new. Every tear wiped away. Sin undone. The world made right. That's the end. This is a hard chapter. And in this chapter, I love you. I'm with you. And I am in absolute control right now. Stay near me. Stay near me. Hide yourself in the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for your grace right now. We're going to lift our eyes to you. Um, I just imagine around this room all sorts of um, fears and anxieties and stresses. And we're running to different places for refuge, for safety, for escape. Would you help us even now to lift our eyes up? Just think of the psalm. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Where does our help come from when relationships are, are struggling and we feel shame and we feel guilt and we feel lost and lonely and we feel devastated and confused and disillusioned and apathetic and frustrated and stuck and ensnared? Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Help us to know that not just in our heads, but even in this moment as we sing, Jesus, would you very powerfully, I think of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, would you allow this incredible love that you have to penetrate through the kind of like cognitive places and deep into our hearts, deep into our hearts, that we would know the love of God that surpasses understanding. In Christ's name, amen.